0: Let's pray together to begin. Father, send us Your Spirit in fuller measure now that we would see Christ. That we would see Him in all His splendor and all His glory and every distraction that this room holds would just fade into the distance as His glory is on display and we are enraptured by Him. God, show us Christ. Show us Your might in how you have orchestrated all history together to bring us into your family by the blood of Christ, by the power of your Spirit. Help us to be satisfied in being brothers and sisters adopted into your wonderful family with a loving Heavenly Father. Amen. Some of you might know that uh, my family has adopted... A couple children and we're actually waiting in a few weeks to adopt one more. And there's this unique experience that adoptive families have that uh, make our lives a little awkward sometimes, especially for our kids. Well-meaning strangers and even close family and friends will sometimes approach us with interesting comments and questions. So for example, Molly has been at the grocery store with our four children and some people have asked her what daycare she runs because our kids don't all look the same, and three of them are actually quite close in age. But that that question makes sense because uh, we're in a culture that that emphasizes a little bit more of the childcare and less of adoption. So that's kind of humorous. We can laugh at something like that. But then there's even uncomfortable, even harmful questions. Some people might say something that or assume something rather terrible about my kids' birth parents and say it right in front of them and make them wonder if that applies to them as well. Or they might say or point out to our children how fortunate they are that they have us as parents, which glosses over all of the pain and loss that they've experienced in their life. But probably the most frequent comment that an adoptive family gets is when someone's trying to distinguish between our biological kids and our adopted kids. They'll ask, which of them are your real children? Well, the right answer is they're all my real children. They're all flesh and blood and they're all Pullmans. But I understand what they're trying to ask. They want to know which ones are biological, but that has less importance in our family than many other things. Our culture is quickly losing the importance of the family, what the family is, and having a hard time defining what the family is. So we think that family are just the people that we like, or the people who live in the same building as us, or the people that we care for and they care for us. But that's not how God defines the family. So what is it that makes my children my real children? This is an important question to ask not just to make my family feel more comfortable in our society, and not to solidify the family unit so that our society will be better off, but answering this question properly helps us understand the gospel and how you and I relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. In our text for today, Jesus makes this surprising statement to all of the people around him about who is truly in the family of God. He's further shaking up the Jewish establishment and begins transforming their concept of who belongs to God. So let's take a look together in the book of Matthew, chapter 12. We're finishing up chapter 12 today on our journey through the book of Matthew. Matthew, chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. Matthew 12, 46 through 50. While he was still teaching, speaking to the people, Behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we want to understand today, what is a real family? What makes a real family? But I'm not just interested in helping you define your own family unit, those who live in the four walls of your home. There's something greater at work in what God is doing in your family and what he's done throughout history in defining the family. So our main idea this morning is that your real family is the church of God in Jesus Christ. Your real family is the church of God in Christ. That seems rather plain from this short text. We've been preaching through some longer segments of Matthew that required longer outlines, but today that point seems rather obvious. So I want to do something a little different today. Instead of spending all our time in this text, I want to back up and understand where this concept of the natural family came from. Go all the way through the Old Testament, back to the beginning, and ask, where Why did the Jews emphasize the natural family, and how do we understand it today? And then come back to the text and launch into the New Testament understanding of this real family in Christ. But before we do that, let's just recall briefly where we've come from in the book of Matthew. We haven't heard much about Jesus' family all the way since the beginning in Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2. There we see this fantastic genealogy that ties Jesus into the whole family of Israel. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham even, solidifying himself in this national identity as a family under their father Abraham. And then we see that he's the child of Mary and Joseph. They lived in Nazareth. They moved to Bethlehem to have the baby, spent some time in the Jerusalem, Bethlehem area, and then to escape Herod, they had to flee to Egypt, but then they came back when Herod died to Galilee and settled back into that area. And we don't hear much more about Jesus' family because it's basically assumed he's a Jew. He's part of the big family of Jews. So what else needs to be said? But then in chapters 11 and 12, now there's this rising opposition to Jesus in his ministry. And he answers why there's opposition in many ways, but now he's going to explain that the opposition is coming because we're not all actually in the same family. Why would the Jews be rejecting the son of David, the one they've been longing for? Why would they turn their back on one of their own brothers? Because Jesus has, is now going to explain to us the spiritual reality of what's been going on. So let's jump in and figure out what the natural family is. Where do we get this idea of family? And how does it apply to this text? Let's start in verse 46 of our text and then go back. While he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside speaking to him. So this seems ordinary enough. Someone wants to talk to him. His mother, Mary, and maybe his brothers, James, Jude, some of the others, want to talk to him. But the crowds are still following him so much. Even though there's this opposition, there's many crowds pressing in around him filling houses wherever he teaches. So they're like, we have something important to say to Jesus. Can we get in and say something? And we have no idea what what they want to ask him because he takes this news that they're there and he just spins it off onto a tangent to teach us something about the natural family leading to the spiritual family. Oftentimes when we read about family in the Bible, whether it's a mention of a father or a son or a brother, in our minds, we can only picture what we've experienced. And so we read about family, and in our American context, for most of us, we're thinking, okay, there's probably maybe a dad and a mom in this family, and two two kids, one of each kind. And uh, the, the mom and the dad, they probably go off to separate jobs and have separate identities in their jobs, unrelated. The kids go to daycare, school. And then the extended family, they're off different parts of the country maybe, maybe they live near, but your lives aren't really integrated that much. And then when the kids grow up, they're going to go off and start their own individual families with their own identities. That's what we expect. We don't have this concept anymore of this multi-generational family that all lives in the same community that works together and celebrates together and mourns together. The extreme opposite of that would be the ancient Israelite family. The natural family was critical to the ancient Israelites. It was your entire identity. It was your welfare system, even. At the most basic level, you had a household, which included more than just mom and dad and a couple kids. It would have multiple generations living in there, maybe an aunt or uncle with you. You would have some slaves or servants and uh, maybe seasonal laborers. An Israelite from the northern parts of The country coming, traveling through is going to stay with you for a few months. Or perhaps a foreigner who wants to come and embrace the Jewish ways lives in your home. And then you have the clan or the extended family, all the same, your aunts and uncles and grandparents and cousins, all in the same neighborhood or the same village. You experience life with them. Marriages, you all celebrate together. Deaths, you weep over together New children you celebrate. They're all in the house for that little baby boy's circumcision, awkwardly. (laughs) And then they experience the whole Israelite calendar, the Jewish calendar together, the wheat and barley harvests, the olive and grape harvests at the end of the year. And they work in each other's fields and they sweat together and they eat of the first fruits together. Life in Israel was all about being a family You're all bought under the same umbrella. You are Jews together under the same fatherhood of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So let's look at the history a little bit and see how they got this deeply entrenched identity in a blood-bound family. Right at the beginning of the Bible, we're all very familiar with Genesis chapter 1. God created Adam and Eve. This is the basic foundation of society, a man and a woman Joined together, the two becoming one flesh, images God, his diversity and unity. And their love is so wonderful together that it overflows and they're fruitful and multiply. And they're supposed to fill the earth with more and more image bearers. But it didn't quite work out that way, did it? In Genesis 3, we see that everything fell apart. And they were kicked out of the garden and they experienced Pain and suffering and eventually death. But God promised Eve in Genesis 3, 15, one day one of her sons is going to come back and crush the head of the serpent and usher them right back into the garden. So they clung to that promise. One of our blood relatives is going to bring restoration. And then the promises continue through Genesis. You see Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and then some of the chapters following, promised by God that one of his blood sons is going to make a great nation out of them and be a blessing to all nations. And then we go on further through the story. They did become a great nation at a time when they had a wonderful king leading the way. They were a prosperous, powerful nation. King David sitting on the throne. And God says to him in 2 Samuel 7, that one of his sons is going to rise and sit on the throne forever and lead them to glory where Israel will fill the whole earth. So they longed for this son of Eve, son of Abraham, son of David. Who is this guy? We got to keep careful track of all of our lineages so we can know when he's coming and where he's coming and expect and preserve this line, which is why we have this emphasis on genealogies in the Bible. We just hate reading genealogies. How many of you skip over the genealogies? We don't care about genealogies because we're so independent we go create our own identity in our own home. But the genealogy was everything to them. It was what tied them back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's what tied them to the hope of the future of this son who would bring us back to the garden. They were desperate for this son to come. Nobody dared mess with the genealogy, the lineage, because that was their hope. Preserving the family identity was a matter of life and death, of salvation for the whole world. But in order to maintain this identity, they needed to, in this hope in the future, son, they need to maintain an actual presence, an actual life. So God gave them this land and said, here in Numbers 27, here's some laws about how you pass this land down from generation to generation so that you can maintain this distinct identity forever. This will be a perpetual inheritance for you and your sons and your grandsons and all of Israel so that there will always be a Jewish family on earth. That's why we don't hear about Perizzites or Jebusites. You know any Perizzites out there? I haven't met any because they didn't have this perpetual land inheritance and a covenant identity in the land. So your kids were always, because of this land, they were always guaranteed to have a job, to have a home, and to have a family life surrounding them to help them get through it. But the purpose was greater than just making sure I had a place for my kids to live and work, but to display who God is and what he's doing and bring about that hope. And so they needed to pass this information on, pass this hope on and this knowledge of where they came from. They needed to teach these covenant laws. So in Deuteronomy 6, God says the primary way that you are going to keep this family identity, this natural family identity, is this intense, all-of-life, all-encompassing, basically, homeschool education program. I'm not calling you guys to be homeschoolers because we're in the New Testament. But maybe it's the better option. So Deuteronomy 6 tells us, write the law on your doorposts, on the door frames, wherever you go, talk about it as you go in and come out, as you lie down, as you stand up. Bind it to your head and to your hands. All of this symbolic for whatever you do, teach your children. If you're working with your hands on the ground, use it to teach your children. You're walking along the way and you see something with your eyes, teach your children whatever you're doing so that eventually they ask you, dad, every single year we have to do this festival. This is So ridiculous. It's boring. Why do we have to do this? And he says, son, let me tell you something. Generations ago, many generations ago, we were slaves in Egypt. And God came and brought us out and gave us a new family identity. He rescued us. He said, you are my people. You are my family. And you need to keep this identity for all of history. And so I'm giving you these laws. To maintain this identity and we are going to teach each other generation after generation after generation and that was 30 generations ago so today we are going to keep doing it so that 30 generations from now they will still be this family the natural family was everything to the jews all the promises for redemption were in the natural family land jobs security all of this was passed down through the natural family. Your retirement was through your natural family. Your kids would take care of you on the land. It was your welfare system if you fell out of favor that someone could take you in and redeem you and restore you. But as important as all of this was, it all pointed to something far greater than everything they were experiencing. Its purpose is fulfilled in Christ when he reveals to us this greater reality That family is not defined by where you live and what you do. So with that emphasis on the natural family, now we can turn back to our text in Matthew chapter 12 and explore the real family of Jesus. I'll pick it back up in verse 48. But Jesus replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So what we know about this deep family identity in Israel, this isn't actually quite a shocking statement. I don't think that his mom and his brothers would have immediately thought, oh, hey, that's not very nice. You're just kind of pushing us off to the side, shunning us. I think maybe they would have just thought, Oh, yeah, he's emphasizing this great work of God to work through all of us together as a family. That's called Israel. But then he clarifies with this shocking statement. It becomes shocking because of the context of the opposition he's facing. The religious rulers are bringing all this hostility towards Jesus. They're supposed to be on the same team. They're supposed to be brothers under their father, Abraham. And so... In this statement, he's not so much disassociating himself from Mary and and his brothers, but from all of Israel, from all of them who say, oh, because we're in the land and because we're blood related to Abraham, we're children of the Father. And he says, I don't think so, guys. You don't obey the Father. You don't love him and enjoy his company. How can you possibly be his children? He's calling them out for their inability to stay faithful to the covenant laws. And so he shifts now the defining characteristics of God's family from blood and land inheritance simply to obedience. And we take this for granted today because we're Gentiles and we've been brought into the family and we're from all over the place. So of course we know it doesn't apply to land and blood relation. But to them, this was a shock. Because for 2,000 years, they're thinking it's all about being a blood Jew. And Jesus says, no, that's not what it was all about. It was pointing to something greater. The whole point of the laws, the whole point of the land, was to point you to a greater reality of enjoying life with God the Father. And so he says, anyone who can do the will of God whether he's related by blood or not, is a child of God. But now we have a problem because nobody is born a child of God. We're all actually born rebels. Nobody can say, "Oh, well, I'm a child of God just because I was born into a Christian family or into a Jewish family. He's blowing that completely out of the water. And so Paul comes along in Ephesians chapter 2 and says, we are by nature children of wrath, like all of mankind. Jesus confronts the religious rulers and says, you guys do the will of your father, the devil. Ouch. In our natural state, Satan is our father. And because he's such a terrible father, he just kind of throws us out there and leaves us as orphans. So how can he then point to his disciples and say, these are my brothers and sisters? Aren't they by nature children of wrath too? Jesus should have said, I have no brothers and sisters here. I'm the only person who ever lived who shares a nature with God the Father. And all of you are condemned. But he invited others into that. How can he do that? Well, he is the only begotten Son of God. He is the only one who shared that nature. He's the only human to ever live who perfectly obeyed God. Yes, dad, whatever you want. Yes, dad. He always responded, yes, dad, whatever the father said. And according to the covenant laws that Israel claimed to live by, though they failed, he was the only one to ever obey. He should have gotten all of the covenant blessings from Deuteronomy 28. They should have handed the land over to him, all of the land to him. He should have received all the wealth in Israel and all the praise. They should have ushered him right to the front of the kingdom. But instead, he took the curses of the law upon himself. He bore the wrath of God on behalf of children of wrath. So that whoever puts their trust in him, this fantastic great exchange happens where we get to have all of the rewards that he earned. This is incredible. He took upon himself our curses so that we could have his rewards. We get to have all the blessings that the natural family pointed towards, that the law pointed towards. We get to have the inheritance of the land. We get to have God as our father and riches beyond imagination. The natural family pointed to a time when you would get to have all of those blessings. But we were unable to keep the law. Those who have put themselves in Christ, who surrender to him, to follow him, God sees them as though they are faithful, obedient sons. So he can look at his disciples and say, these are my brothers and sisters. Because when God looks down at them, he doesn't see rebellious children of wrath. He sees his own son, faithful and obedient. And so we get to inherit the entire earth one day. One day we're all going to be rich in heaven, brother and sister filling the earth. You can travel to the other side of the globe and hug your brother and share in the inheritance with him. What a fantastic joy and privilege that it is to be adopted into his family. But what does that look like for us today? That's a wonderful opportunity that's long into the future. This certainly must have some application to how we do church. We call each other brothers and sisters. Some of us like to hug and some of us don't. (laughs) But we are brothers and sisters. What does that mean? This is something we've spoken of, hinted at a lot here at Redemption, that we are brothers and sisters, and that should have an effect on how we live and what we do with our week. And I think... I've experienced this family relationship in this church more than I have any other place in my entire life. You guys have this love for one another and for my family that has just been such a blessing. We are a family. In fact, we are so much of a family. This church family is more than just biologically related. We are more of a real family than the one you're going to go home with in a couple hours. We are the people that you're going to spend eternity with if you have put your life in Christ. Whether you like it or not, the person sitting next to you, if they have put their faith in Christ, they're going to be some of your best friends in heaven. So let's start practicing now and figure out how to get along with one another now. Now, this reality doesn't mean that we completely neglect the natural family. I'm not calling anyone to sell everything and come and live in my house or that we should go buy a big building and live a communal lifestyle together. What I'm saying is that God designed it so that your natural family points to the greater reality of the spiritual real family. It doesn't do away with it, just like the old covenant law. We don't just throw it out as though it has no importance in our lives, but it no longer defines who we are. It doesn't provide the markers of identity for us. It's simple, simply a useful tool to make the truer, more spiritual reality more understandable. So with the law, we say, what does it mean to live in obedience to the Father? Well, we could go to the Old Testament law and say, well, here's an example It might be something kind of like that. And then we come back and apply it in our day. And so with the family, we say, what does it mean for us to be in the family of God, with God the Father taking care of us? Well, here's a family with a mom and a dad and kids, and they take care of each other. So let's take that and expand it and make it deeper and drive it home in what we do here at Redemption. And so that's what I want to do a little bit with the example of how we've adopted, how adoption looks like, what adoption looks like in our family, and then apply that in three parts to what we do here at Redemption. So in three parts, the first part is adoption is a public legal declaration of a complete change in identity. And then after that, because of that legal declaration, adoption guarantees a future inheritance. And finally... Because of those things, that hopeful looking forward and that certainty looking backward, we become like the family that we have been adopted into. These are what identifies, what marks a true family under God the Father. So first, when someone's adopted, they go through this legal process that you go to the judge and they look at your case, they analyze your family, make sure that it's an actual good family to put a child into, and then they make a declaration. Yes, I signed this adoption decree. That old life is gone. You are now part of this family. They even changed the birth certificate. So our daughter that we recently, most recently adopted, her birth certificate says that we are her parents. It looks like from birth, we are her parents. She came to our home when she was four years old. She had a different last name, different cultural experiences, and a different future until the day that the judge said, you are a Pullman. And everything changed that day. She's no longer defined by that old life, even if she's still shedding some of the habits of that old life. And so too is our entrance into the family of God by adoption, into this church. Paul says in Romans 8 that you've been given the spirit. He signs the adoption decree so you can cry out, Abba, Father. So no matter what family you've come from, the Moonen family, or the Murray family, or the Lenz family, or the Hunsberger family, or the Opperman or Dahl family, those are important, but those no longer define you. You are now given a new name, and a new culture, and a new future. No matter where you've been from, all of us together share the same future, the same rich inheritance sometime in the future which is the second defining characteristic of God's real family, this inheritance. The day that our daughter was proclaimed a Pullman, she became an heir to everything that I own, which admittedly is very little. But because she's a full, real member of our family, just like every other kid, she gets a stake in all of that, which means... She doesn't need to worry about being taken care of. She doesn't need to prove to me, I'm a Pullman, right, Dad? Look, I dance like Pullmans. I sing like Pullmans. No, honey. You are declared a Pullman. You are safe. You are cared for. You have an inheritance. She doesn't need to hoard candy and food or money or clothing in her room just in case we don't take care of her. No, she's fully a Pullman. She has that inheritance. And so when we're adopted into the church family, we all get a part in the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. And so we don't need to walk around proving, look, I'm a Christian. I sing like Christians and I play weird games like Christians. You just, you get the inheritance because the Spirit sealed you in Him, guaranteeing you, Paul says again in Romans 8, that you will receive that promised inheritance. And so we don't, hoard up treasures on on earth for ourselves just in case God doesn't come through, just in case his family doesn't take care of us. No, we use the treasures we've been given to care for one another, to be at work in one another's lives, to work in each other's harvest fields, knowing that we all share the same inheritance. We get to display to the world our hope is in that future, not this one of my old natural family. And finally, in adoption, we actually start to become like the family we've been brought into. Even though my daughter was declared a Pullman that day two years ago, nothing changed in her all of a sudden. She didn't feel or think or act like a Pullman. She was quite uncomfortable in our house. Our love felt awkward to her, even painful to her at times. There were so many tears and screams that she wanted out of this family. Nobody could have looked at her and said, well, she's a chip off the old block. She didn't look anything like us. And yet two years have gone by and more and more and more. She's beginning to look at look like us. It's funny. Sometimes Molly and I will look at each other and say, did you see that face she just made? That is totally you. She got that from you. Because the more she hangs out with us, the more she just absorbs what it means to be a Pullman. Even though she was legally declared fully a Pullman, she also had to become behaviorally fully a Pullman. And so too you can see in our life together as brothers and sisters in the church. If your identity is in Christ, you've put your trust in him, surrendered your life to him, said, you are all I need, Jesus. He stamps that adoption decree and says you are fully a child of God. Even if your language needs to be cleaned up a little bit, or even if your life needs some help, even if you don't walk and talk and dance and sing quite like a child of God yet. You don't know the language, the routines. You look at us and you think, why do they do that? That's so weird. Man, those church people have fun in strange ways. But because your adoption decree was sealed by the Holy Spirit, it's guaranteed that you will stick with the family and become like us. That's the difference between justification and sanctification. You're justified. That's a legal decree. He is clean. He is clear. He is in the family. And now begins the sanctification process where I become like the family. So that one day someone might say, well, the apple doesn't fall far from that tree. If you stick with the church family long enough, you will become like us. That's why we emphasize community and diversity so much here. We want you to spend as much time together as possible in order to become like your real family, in order to become like your brothers and sisters, particularly like your big brother, Jesus. And God guarantees, because of his spirit, that he will transform each one of us into his likeness fully where it won't be so awkward, it won't be so painful anymore to receive His love, because we will finally receive our inheritance. So if you haven't received Christ yet today, what are you waiting for? As awkward as these people are, they're the best family in the world. What family has a better inheritance, has a better father? None. Your natural family should point you to this greater father. I'm in disobedience to God if I don't point my kids when they adore me. Dad, you're the best dad. No, son. There is a greater father. And so I plead with you, turn to the greater father and join the greater family. That Though it's painful and awkward now, one day we will share in eternity in heaven with a wonderful inheritance. So let's pray together in great anticipation of that day. Father, we rejoice that we can call you Father. That is only possible by a work of the Spirit. God, if there's anybody here who has not been adopted into your wonderful family in Christ, I pray that right now in this moment they would give themselves, say, I want to be part of that family. God, make me yours. And help us to welcome them, even in all of the pain and awkwardness and uncomfort, discomfort, while they grow, to embrace the identity of this real, everlasting family. God, we thank you that because of Christ and his perfect obedience, that when we are in him, we can enjoy the blessings of this family. Help us, God. Help us to more and more put off the old life, the old identity, and put on the new man in Christ, that we would be pleasing in your sight children who delight their Heavenly Father. Amen.